I was completely disconnected from American culture, the war machine. And as Krishnamurti said, it's no measure of success to be adjusted to a profoundly sick society. I read a book by Mahasi Sero in 1971. It was his Vipassana instructions, and I was a yogi at the time. I practiced yoga, and I was a vegetarian, and I couldn't quite find a place in my life where there was a resonant teaching. Uh, but when I picked this book up in a bookstore in West Palm Beach, Florida, it instantly resonated. You're here to meditate. You don't know how long you can stay. It's not going to be long. And so here's a 20-hour day schedule and begin to watch your mind. And that's what I did. Why would I ever want to return to lay life when the results of focusing concentration and effort and mindfulness on the nature of mind leads to this level of insight and joy? I said, forget it. And so that continued on until I was thrown out of the country on several occasions by whatever reason Nay Win in his authoritarian xenophobia desired. You just got a notice at the monastery that you've been told to leave in 24 hours. And so I did that three times. If you have an aspiration to explore the concept of enlightenment, they provide an environment free of charge for that exploration. These people have given me four and a half decades of incredible experience, incredible dana, and an opportunity to study my own mind and learn practices and techniques and teachings and relationships, as you know very well, on how to be a better person. grateful that Alan Clements made time for our talk. Between meditation retreats, book projects, video talks, planning pilgrimages, and his own activism, Alan's not a guy with the luxury of too much free time on his hands. Throw into the mix the jumbled mess of Yangon traffic that you're now required to wade through to get anywhere these days, and showing up is not just an act of compassion, but also equanimity on his part. Yet despite the effort to get here, and although we'd never met before, From the moment Alan sat down, spread out his hands, and said, okay, ask me anything, the stories and details flowed out through him effortlessly and with a sparkling clarity. Pausing to reflect on the depth of the particular question at hand, he would answer by choosing his words carefully and ultimately painting a multi-layered portrait in describing the past era of his early Dhamma practice, when he was a young and eager foreigner trying to squeeze past the rigid Burmese immigration system of that time, while also trying to squeeze in all the wisdom he could from his revered teacher, Sayada Upandita. The depth of reverence, gratitude, and love he maintains towards Sayada, who passed away just a few years ago at the age of 95, 
ripples through his voice as he recounts those early days studying at his feet, somehow, but not always, avoiding the draconian seven-day visa restriction placed on all foreigners during those years. Allen is one of what must be only a very small handful of dedicated meditators who persevered through those extremely difficult conditions to remain on the path in the Golden Land. In other words, there are not too many other people who can share what he does in this interview. After we finished, I think Alan found the talk as riveting as I did because he offered to come back, yes, through that same traffic, to cover yet more ground, imploring me that no topic should be off limits next time. Hint, hint, a little teaser perhaps for part two? More seriously, he was obviously gratified to have found a space to discuss these formative years, adding that he had rarely ever found such a forum to do so. And yet the gratitude was all on my side, as hearing the insider's view directly from such a dedicated practitioner gave me so much more insight into an earlier and much more challenging period of Dhamma practice in Myanmar for the foreign yogi particularly. I hope that all you listening can reflect on how good you have it today. And overall, Alan must have found the conversation valuable as well. Because shortly after the interview, Alan contacted me to ask permission to include the talk in his upcoming four-volume work, Burma's Voices of Freedom, permission that we immediately granted, and it's an honor to be contributing in this way to his work. With Alan, the listener is treated to a meditator who is skilled at understanding both East and West, and whose evocative language is able to bring home with stunning clarity and detail a time long gone. His gratitude towards the Burmese underscores his four decades plus relationship with the country and its people. And although he interacted with some of the leaders, not only of the Buddhist Sangha, but also of the democracy movement, he is careful never to put his own story above theirs. Indeed, his own Dhamma practice occurred simultaneous to these much larger political movements taking place. And Alan was caught up in these as well, as you will hear. With that, let's dive into the talk we had. This is a good one, and I'm very pleased to be bringing it your way. Joa, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Thanks for coming out here. Very happy to be here. Yeah, really appreciate taking the time. Yep, feel free to ask anything. Yeah, so um, so you're in Yangon now. Uh, how often do you usually get to Yangon and to Myanmar? I have been coming to Myanmar, Burma, uh, every year since 2012. That was when President Tain Sein unbanned me after 17 years from not being allowed to be here. Mm-hmm. And since 2012, I've been coming back uh, between once and twice, maybe two to five months a year. Mm-hmm. Right. And what do you usually do with your time here? Uh, what I usually do is um, meet the people. I'm really fond of meeting the people of this country, the diverse people of this country, from the impoverished in Langthea to people in different provinces, states, divisions, monastics, uh, many mosques, many churches, just trying to meet the diversity of people in this country. Um, more recently, the last five years, uh, we've organized an annual retreat at the Mahasi Satana Yekta in Yangon, primarily for English-speaking yogis, which doesn't mean Burmese don't attend. Uh, And so this is the fifth year that we've had that. And that's the principal reason, that's one of the principal reasons why I come back. Hmm. I'll leave it at that. Right. So 
I can imagine you first came to Myanmar in 1977. 1977, okay. March 77. So I imagine you've seen some immense changes through every stage of your visit here and especially today. Yes, the changes uh, sadly and profoundly are well documented. Uh, I mean, I was young and naive when I came here. I had practiced Buddhist meditation in America. I was at Naropa Institute when it opened in 74. I read a book by Mahasi Sayadaw in 1971. Mm. Which book was it? It was his Vipassana instructions. And I was a yogi at the time. I practiced yoga and I was a vegetarian. And I couldn't quite find a place in my life where there was a resonant teaching. Uh, but when I picked this book up in a bookstore in West Palm Beach, Florida, it instantly resonated. Mm. And um, the cleanliness of it, the clarity of it, the causality, if you do this, you'll discover that. And it really addressed the core dilemma that I had, which was, at the time, it was an unrecognized, I would say, appreciation, if not an awe for the Buddhist first noble truth of dukkha. And uh, rare do you encounter people that understand the first noble truth, and equally rare people who even use the word samsara as something to discover the machinations of how this infinite tapestry of cognitive and physical phenomena interrelate. And Mahasi Sayadaw just simply addressed the causality and the causes and the conditions primarily for my fundamental dilemma, which is why do I suffer? I knew the world suffered. I was uh, very aware politically. I went to college. I part of the Vietnam era the horrors of the world, not unlike today with Iraq and Syria, Yemen, Afghanistan, the tragedies we see everywhere. Mahasi Sado addressed the root issue, which is it's an issue of consciousness, greed, anger, and delusion. And he said, if you do this, you'll discover how you can change that in yourself. And so that stuck in me very deeply. I met someone who knew of Mahasi Sado in Boulder, Colorado in 74. And I came here with my partner at the time to ordain with Mahasi Sayadaw in 1977. That was my mm. intention. Wow, that's wonderful. Um, so in the last five years or so, it's gotten increasingly easier for Dhamma practitioners from foreign countries to come and engage in all levels of practice here. Uh, you were one of the first Westerners to come to Burma and really throw yourself into the depths of monasticism at a time when it was both unusual to do as well as the logistical challenges of trying to stay here as a foreigner when many were looked upon with suspicion by the past government. So for those of us that have come later and uh, know about these things only in vague sense of stories or maybe not even that, I think uh, myself for sure, a lot of listeners as well, a lot of meditators who are coming now would really be interested in the feel of what it was like when you came in 1977, what that reality was like and how... Uh, that was different from where we find ourselves now. Um, answer that, I went to Shwebo, Mahasi Sayadaw's home village. Sekun. Sekun, mm. in the Shwebo area. And um, I asked him if I could ordain with him. In Sekun. Yeah. So he was in Sekun, not the, the Yangon Mahasi Center at the time. No. he Well, he was based in the Mahasi Center, but he was back to his home village doing some form of Dhamma teaching. Mm, I see. And so since it was only a one-week visa at the time, ah, right. you had a split second to meet who you wanted to meet. <laughs> right. So wow. I went up there with a group of people, friends, and uh, asked him if I could ordain. And he said, uh, it's an honorable desire. 
but you, we live under dictatorship. And I really didn't even know what the word meant particularly at the time. <laughs> Uh, I thought that America was pretty much under a dictatorship, but I never <laughs> right. knew that it morphed around the world like that. Yeah. But, and uh, he said, no, you can't stay for more than seven days. And uh, But he recommended that I go to a monastery in Sri Lanka, which I did. I didn't ordain. But it stayed in my heart to cut to the chase. And uh, since I couldn't live here, and there was no extension of visas at the time outside of diplomats that I heard about, that I invited him with a group of friends to America in 78. And he came and we organized, I organized two separate retreats for him. At the end of those retreats in New York, I met with him and asked if I could return with him to ordain as a monk in Burma, Duty MP, a second time. And uh, he said, you're more than welcome to ordain here as a Samanera, and we will try our best when we return to Rangoon to appeal with the government, uh, Nguyen, to see whether or not there could be an extension. So I got here on day seven of my visa running out. I was ready to disrobe. This was 78? This was 79. Hmm. And uh, early in 79, and he, the visa came. The extension came for three months. So to make a long story wow. short, I ended up staying extensions after extensions. The landscape of life at that time, I knew very little of it. I mean, we came in on a prop plane. It was a quarter of a million people at the airport and along the roads from the airport to the Mahasi Center in Bahan. Um, and you were just simply ordered, if you will, to abide by the rules of conduct by a monk. You're here to meditate. You don't know how long you can stay. It's not going to be long. Mm -hmm. And so here's a 20-hour day schedule. Mm -hmm. And begin to watch your mind. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did. Um, I was awed that I was in the company of such a learned monk and a great practitioner as he was. Uh, and I just dropped into what felt to be a slow but very progressively upward-moving dynamic of feeling that I had arrived like in a devaloka, frankly, in a realm of uh, beings so immersed in their dhamma and their meditation that I felt like I'd come home, literally. And uh, the world fell away. I mean, I had no relationship to Burma outside of being in that monastery and being with Mahasi Sedo and Sedo Ujjata and Sedo Ujjabana, my three teachers. This is the, the Yangon Mahasi. Mm -hmm. This was 79. And so that continued on until, until I was thrown out of the country on several occasions by whatever reason, Nguyen, in his authoritarian xenophobia, desired you just got a notice at the monastery that you've been told to leave in 24 hours. And so I did that three times. So it was a real sense of Anicca when you're meditating, you're here today, you could be gone tomorrow, you could be gone next hour, you don't know how long your course is, just as you don't know how long your life is, the, really a sense of the present moment is all you have in that kind of practice. It was, you know the word sanvega, the sense of spiritual urgency. Um, I had that coupled with my own terror of America. I was completely disconnected from American culture, the war machine. And as Krishnamurti said, it's no measure of success to be adjusted to a profoundly sick society. Right. I had no interest in participating in the American machine. Mm. So you were in the Burma machine instead? At the door I, was, I was in the Dhamma realm, and that's what the monastery represented. It was an oasis from right. the hell of ordinary. Mm. And so that stayed from 79 to 84? You were basically able to keep In and out of the country. Ah. Three times thrown out. Ah. 
and able to come back in. Strangely, through the serendipity of choice and tenacity and destiny, karma, call it what you will, I did come back. And eventually, on the fourth return, they came to the monastery yet again and said, it's time to leave. As a monk, you. As a monk. Yeah. Right. And I just said, I can't keep doing this. And so I disrobed and uh, I returned to America, a land that I loathed, and uh, pursued a Dhamma life pretty much like it was in the monastery, teaching retreats and primarily doing them so that I could meditate. Mm -hmm. I wasn't so keen on teaching, but right. it was a great way to be around the emergence of a mindful Sangha if you will. So when you were there from 79 to 84, were there many other foreign monastics or practitioners you were interacting with? Uh, what was the regulation at the time for who was allowed to come, who, who was allowed to stay? Or were you, did you feel pretty isolated, not in terms of not having support or, or Dhamma friends, but as being someone from a foreign country trying to adjust and practice in that way? Because today there's obviously a lot more uh, here that are able to come. There were initially one American um, who came, who stayed for about five months and then moved on to Thailand. Uh, I remember writing a, an aerogram to the Thai Buddhist Society in Bangkok and a few other places, alerting them that the country were open if you did this at the Mahasi Center. And a few lay people began to came, become. And um, at the time, I was very close with the, uh, a few friends at the Insight Meditation Society. Uh, and I wrote letters to friends there and saying that they could come if they did it this way. I'd say at the peak of our time, though, there may have been seven to 12 people. Mm -hmm. At one time. At one time, right. foreigners from European, Canadian, American com uh, countries. Uh, but most couldn't sustain the intensity of that schedule and the demand of the weather, the food, uh, by and large, there were no meditation cushions allowed in the meditation hall. Mm. What did you sit on then? You sat like the Burmese mm. uh, with a towel or a mat or just learned to sit cross-legged on the wood. Mm. Um, there were no mosquito nets. Uh, there were hundreds of dogs that howled <laughs> every minute the bell went off. Mm. Uh, there was no purified water. Wow. And the food was mostly meat and yeah. oil. Uh, and you were vegetarian before you came. I was a vegetarian until the day I ordained. <laughs> and yeah. uh, so most left. I, was in, I think I was in the Mahasi Center for about a year and a half without any foreigners there. Uh, but we did find that Malaysian Chinese came. Right. Slowly a few came from Nepal, one or two from Vietnam, but very few from America or Europe or Canada or Australia. So how do you think you were able to put up with so many of those difficulties you describe when others who came weren't able to manage? Three reasons. Um, four. I just love the spirit of the Burmese people, the people of Burma, not only the Burmese. To be in a culture so driven by dana, generosity, unconditional giving, was in itself awe-inspiring. An impoverished country terrorized by authoritarian totalitarianism that they sought after giving as a vocation of their life. Their dignity rode on that wave. That was very empowering for me to see, mm. one. Uh, I won't go into the details, but I loathed American culture. 
I don't, I feel grateful that I feel very at two, so to speak, with killing. America's a killing machine. Um, not to say that's the only country in the world, but I feel grateful that I feel repulsed by violence. So there was nothing to go back to. I'd made a lot of money. I'd been in a long-term relationship. It wasn't sex and money. I was well-educated. I read. I painted. It was creative. I mm. played music. Right. Okay, I had all the things that people longed for. Mm. Uh, two. Three, I was in intimate company, if you will, with the leading Sayadaws at the Mahasi Center. Um, Mahasi Sayadaw, you know, one of the chief people at the Sixth Great Buddhist Council. Certainly, you know, the Mahasi Yekta is considered the home, if the birthplace of the worldwide uh, mass lay meditation movement. Um, I had access to him in dialogue. I had access to them in behavioral apprenticeship, watching them, how they talk, relate, share, listen, look. Seda Upandita became one of my closest teachers and friends after Mahasi died when I was in 1982. Right. And... Uh, these monks at the time, being that I was among the first Westerners, I was told, ever to ordain at the Yekta um, in modern times, handful of others, they delighted in talking to this young novice. And so we had an endless lineup of translators, and I had unlimited questions about the nature of consciousness and meditation and life, theoretical questions. I'm sure they found me... <laughs> you know, barely tolerable. <laughs> but the delight of that Dhamma dialogue, if you will, was radically inspiring to mm, me. Mm. And I just simply loved the regularity of monastic life. The idea of meditating uh, a lot, it wasn't ever an issue of a lot. Mm. I actually enjoyed meditation. And mm. so the last point was, um, I may not be a quick learner, but I'm a very diligent student. And I listened very carefully. And so I listened to their instructions. I know that I didn't know. And I had great faith and confidence that they did know. And so I put aside my, my own opinions and listened carefully to their instructions and mm -hmm. followed them. And they turned out to be very valuable to do that, very valuable approach to meditation. Just set your own mind aside, your own thoughts, your preferences. Be mindful if you need to be mindful of them. But by and large, just surrender and listen and do. And I did that, and the results were remarkable. And so I said, why would I ever want to return to lay life mm -hmm. when the results of focusing concentration and effort and mindfulness on the nature of mind leads to this level of insight and joy? I said, forget it. Right. And so those four things were the reasons I stayed. Right. Uh, with the growth of the mindfulness and meditation movement, it, there was a change from a direct teacher-student relationship over several years that would be... The, the teacher would give instructions based on their innate knowledge of the student and then moving into much larger courses and more regulated to be able to handle the numbers where you have to have administration and organized teaching, set structure. Um, this day you do this, this day you do that. It really, it's the only way to accommodate those level of numbers is to set up some kind of structure. So you found yourself kind of in the uh, uh, at the moment when that transformation was taking place and you were with some of these great sayadas. So this is the Mahasi technique, or this is the Pandita technique, and this is how you're following it. That kind of balanced with this is who you are, this is how they know you, this is how you're changing. 
Um, it's it's more of a of a fluid um, in the moment uh, learning experience. Uh, how did you feel your relationship and your um, uh, your learning and the instruction they were giving Phil in that dynamic? Call it parami karma disposition past life present life familiarity of psychic phenomena. You just meet people in this world where there's a resonant connection, and I literally felt not only when I arrived that I was coming home and came home. I felt that progressively over the months and the years of association with initially with Mahasi Seiro, with Seda Upandita, Seda Usujata, Seda Uzabuna, the principal of Adasarias, and then branching from them, their tribe. It was a remarkable network of of cognitive, meta, karuna, compassionate-based, dana-oriented, dignified human interrelatedness. It was a dhamma family. And I went, I never dreamt that human life could provide this. Mm. I'd done a lot of psychedelics. I'd mm -hmm. done a lot of meditation. Mm. I'd done a lot of yoga. I'd fallen in love. I'd written poems. I'd done philosophy. I did art. Mm. I did tantra, but nothing compared mm. to the cognitive residence of dhamma at higher levels with these great masters. Now, mind you, I'm not trying to speak about some attributes that I had some great insights. There were some insights, but I felt like I was coming progressively home to a field of consciousness that I'd never experienced in any other form of mm -hmm. behavior. So it grew in depth. Mm -hmm. The instructions, it's funny about, you know, here it is some 41 years later. Let me just digress. I mean, I had the good fortune of bringing Mahasi to America bringing Seda Upandita twice to America and to Australia. I've seen the multitudes interrelate with the Burmese Buddhist Theravadan tradition. I've seen it relate to the so-called Mahasi teaching method of Satipatthana, the so-called Seda Upandita interpretation of the Mahasi Satipatthana Theravadan tradition. Mm -hmm. But my experience in watching quite a few thousands of Westerners sit with these teachers, primarily with Seda Upandita, through expert translators, and I used to speak Burmese fairly well, but it's terrible today, and listening to the diversity of those instructions, that to put the so-called Mahasi method into a box is mm -hmm. impossible. Mm -hmm. The initial instructions are pretty straightforward. Right. But even just jumping around, for example, the last five years, uh, we've had yogis coming between two weeks and six weeks from around the world to sit with the various monks at the Mahasi Center. And again, I'm sitting in on interviews every day and listening to the diversity yet again of the instructions and the experience. It's impossible to define the Mahasi method other than the immensity of the Satipatthana teaching. Right. So it's very dynamic and fluid. And I've often said over the 30, 40 years I've been involved in this system, and it's accurate. You could have 500 monks in a meditation hall, and over the course of a week, those monks and or nuns, which the Mahasi Center often has between 300 and 3,000 yogis who see their teacher every other day, every third day, every one of their experiences overlap, but often the instructions differ. Mm-hmm. Right. Yogi to yogi. And, uh, and of course, the deeper you go, the more dimensionality you find in your own mind and body. It's been my experience of listening and of my own practice 
that over the course of two weeks, three weeks, a month, six weeks, we've had yogis stay up to two to three years in silence. Mm -hmm. What you encounter, what you hear in instructions six months in, mm -hmm. it's like Stephen Hawking talking to a kindergarten teacher. Right. Mm -hmm. The dimensionality of these teachings cannot be pigeonholed or boxed. There is no Mahasi system. Mm -hmm. It's these infinite teachings of the, of the so-called Buddha through the power of mindfulness illuminating the structures of nama rupa, consciousness and physicality, in ways that none of us really understand. Even Mahasi said, I'm not an arhant, mm. set aside being a Buddha. Right. And none of them, as you know very well, having been here for so long, none of these people talk about their insights. Mm -hmm. It's so taboo right. that no one really knows, but you have a lot of people in the world with attitude about this is what mindfulness is, this is what it isn't, this is the Mahasi system versus Sunlun versus versus Utejaniya or, you know, Shweomin or any number of the other teachers in this country. And it's just my experience, impossible to play that game. Right. The best way is to, not to sound preachy about this, the beauty of these teachings for me is direct experience. Mm -hmm. You know, we're breathing right now, obviously, and there's no substitute for breathing. There's not, no one who's listening, you or I, would ever go on the fact that, listen, just save up your breath for tomorrow. Hmm. You can't save up your mindfulness for tomorrow. You can't save up your, the oxygen of your dhamma for tomorrow. It's an every moment experience that requires the direct application of breathing, breathing well. And you don't just breathe to breathe and be mindful of breathing. It's what it does. It animates consciousness. Mm -hmm. Mindfulness illuminates the nature of consciousness. It's the wisdom of breathing. It's the wisdom of the practice that really turns you into something different. Mm. And if people get the direct immediacy of that, it becomes a timeless evolutional practice and you're in this wild lineage of a Buddha, a right. Buddha life. Right. And no one really knows ultimately where that ultimately leads. Even Mahasi, when I've asked him, and he's been asked numerous times, are you in our hunt? More work to do. Right. And so we're children, so to speak, in this Dhamma. And so those are some of the insights that I've had about it. Um, just to recap, my experience with the Mahasi system, which they would really refute to even hear that, mm -hmm. it's not a Mahasi system. It's the translation of the... Satipatthana Sutta. And yes, there's a technique of watching the abdomen, but there are many teachers in that system that allow Anapanasati. There's many experiences that happen where there's spontaneous abhinya, psychic powers, ESP, so many different things that never get discussed. Again, for whatever reason, over the four decades of being here, I've sat in on thousands of interviews and listened to thousands of people's reports. And it's just mind-blowing to hear the diversity of experiences that never get talked about. That, that's a really beautiful answer. And one of the things that's making me wonder is when a teacher comes along and interprets the words of the Buddha and has a, uh, a technique or a, a system to, to follow through for practice that's in accordance with his understanding or her understanding, then as that practice grows, there can be uh, there are new teachers that have to come along to help to manage it. Obviously, Mahasi is a, is a major system. It's very popular all over, especially Southeast Asia, and it's been, been many Western countries as well. And so there's been a need to, as, as it started to grow, Mahasi had to, Mahasi Sayada had to have other teachers under him start to teach in his name or that he was comfortable uh, to 
to expand and to teach the Dhamma. So what was the, given what you just said now, uh, what was Mahasi's um, instruction or feeling about how much one should stay within some kind of confines or structure, even if they were wider, something that was accordance with his understanding? And if, and if it is so varied and it's impossible to put anything in a box, then what, what was the balance of freedom and trust he gave teachers in his name or teachers that he encouraged to, to teach um, balanced with the, um, uh, his interpretation, as wide as it might be, of, uh, that was in accordance with kind of how he felt? Interesting. Um, again, in my experience here, stating the obvious, uh, having had numerous hours and months and years of dialogue, primarily with the late Venerable Saita Upandita, who, I mean, I, we spent decades discussing Dhamma, did a book with him before mm -hmm. he died, uh, Wisdom for a World in Crisis, you know, I, but I had thousands of hours of dialogue with him. And uh, Mahasi Sayadaw, and Saira Upandita, the principal two senior Nayaka Sayadaws in that tradition, maybe Usilananda to some extent, but he really wasn't a meditation teacher, Ulakana to some extent, but primarily Saira Upandita, who became the Ovadasarya of Mahasi when he passed away. Principal Vipassana Satipatthana teachers, they made it adamantly clear that they never have, ever have sanctioned a Westerner to teach in the system. Mm, right. Okay. So anyone who's teaching in the so-called Mahasi system is doing it against what they've been told by Mahasi Seda in Seda Upandita. He's right. been adamant about that. Mm. Even Westerners, I've been told, who've gone to see him asking for, can we, I be sanctioned in your tradition under you? And he'll say, not only no, but I would ask you to cease teaching. Mm -hmm. Share what you know from your direct experience, but don't use the word teach. Right. Very different. Mm -hmm. And so that's one thing, is that there are no Western teachers that have been accredited, so to speak, within the Mahat, including right. me. Right. I don't, I don't teach Buddhism. Mm. I don't teach retreats. Mm. I ceased using the word. Mm. I simply share my experience of how I meditate and lead group discussions by those who want to come and reveal how I've lied to myself, how I've deceived myself, the insights, the fears, the proclivities, the experiences. But don't follow me. Right. Think for yourself. You know, follow the Kalama Sutta. Right. Do that which liberates and be very careful about assessing what liberates from that which you think liberates. And how about the, the Myanmar teachers, the Burmese teachers under Mahasi? What was the balance that Mahasi or Pandita had with uh, the flexibility and trust in them to, um, to, to be flexible in their teaching and how much they should be in accordance to their understanding? Right. Well, back, back to what I was saying. All I know primarily is from my relationship with Seda Upandita, sure. Mahasi, Seda Usujata, Seda Uzawana, and primarily Seda Upandita because he's the one became my father, my brother, my we became Dhamma allies. He was, and he's the one I brought to America twice in Australia, where many thousands of people practiced with him. And a number of key so-called, I want to use the word teachers, but people who definitely claim themselves to be teachers, um, align themselves with having so-called trained under him. Back to the Westerners before I get into the mm, Burmese sure, answer. Sure, sure, sure. 
And so my experience with him is that the breadth dimension of these teachings under Mahasi was most exposed to me through him. And the immensity of them are anywhere from basic arithmetic to calculus. And the irony in the, is that most people don't know much more than their own practice with him. Mm, interesting. Because you don't have, you're not being trained as a teacher. Mm -hmm. Now, in a, if you're Burmese under the training to become a dhammacharya or a dhamma teacher, a meditation teacher in the Mahasi tradition, it's a minimum of, of 10 to 20 years of at, you know, deep study and practice and listening to interviews. And even then, a long, long period of just listening and practicing. And they're super strict about staying within a framework of how they've interpreted the Satipatthana Sutta. So there is something of a box in that. It's a pretty, it's like saying, you know, let me say it another angle. You know, one of the interests that made me draw near to Mahasi Sero was he was unlike Uba Kin, who Uba Kin was a board member of the Mahasi Yegna. Mm -hmm. And of course, Kuenka was one of his students, but they isolated on physical phenomena, primarily sweeping the body. What, what appealed to me about Mahasi Sero's understanding and presentation of Satipatthana mindfulness practice, it was called the all posture meditation. Uh, sitting, standing, walking, reclining, lying down. And then they called it everything in between. And so the emphasis wasn't so much on sitting as it was being mindful in all activities. Mm. And so it took the pressure off of, I would call it postural apartheid. Hmm. Many people think that standing or sitting is the priority of how you get concentrated. And right. If you're not singular on your nostrils and the sensations, the anapana, the samadhi won't really you know, become focused. Mm -hmm. But there they were saying, listen, this is a wisdom center. Mm. It's why we call our retreat the wisdom of mindfulness. Mm. And they say, listen, approach the day when you're not sleeping as a day of awakening. Mm -hmm. Take it off of sitting, standing, walking, or lying down. And we were encouraged for a long time to eat every mouthful of food as if it was your first and your last. I mm. mean, they said constantly one of the, you know, instructions was take the speed out of what you're doing. Mm. So slow eating. Super slow. When you open the door to, say, to Upandita's cottage, he would often ask a yogi when they came in and bowed and sat there waiting to, you know, reveal to the teacher their insight into a sitting. He would ask them, would you please tell me what you observed in reaching for the doorknob. Mm -hmm. He wanted to know that you really were inclusive of being mindful in a continuous way. Right, right. Con continuity and taking the speed out of life and taking the preference out of posture were three distinctive marks of the so-called Mahasi system, which I found very fascinating. Mm -hmm. And so one of the challenges I've had in my life, I, and I don't say this glibly, but I OCD'd on meditation. And I think you can. This is a whole other conversation. And it may work for the Burmese in their cultural setting, but as an American in the cultural setting that I came from, having immersed myself in the Burmese system of silent intensive practice and celibacy and doing what I did there and the degree of insight that I developed from that practice, I felt that the idea of integration was completely anathema to the Dhamma. 
is ridiculous. There's no way to integrate this. This is meant to disrupt life. <laughs> right. You know, mm. my life has been conditioned by seeing the value in unrecognized or, or disguised form of greed called romance, mm -hmm. you know, on and on and on. It tore everything down. Yeah. yeah. And so you become, in a way, strangely psychotic through insight. Mm. Yes. You become, right. you know, profoundly unadjusted to the machinations of how humans, by and large, relate to humans in culture mm -hmm. to the point where you, you hear a sound and it's impossible to stay steady with that sound. As you know, as a right. meditator. Yes, yes. So there's no way to integrate hearing, hearing, and being with auditory vibration and noticing greed arises. That's nonsense. The deeper you go in meditation, the less capacity you have to live in life. Mm -hmm. You need to be around super refined energy. That's been my experience. Sure, anyway, sure. to make a long story short, um, the training for these people, coming back to the Burmese, they provide a singular approach, which is very rare in this world, is that if you have an aspiration to explore the concept of enlightenment, they provide an environment free of charge for that exploration. And that is rare in this planet. Yes, yes. They speak not only highly of it, but take you in as a sister, a son of the Dhamma and say, please, all we ask is that you follow the rules of conduct as a laywoman or a monk or a nun or a layman, and we'll teach you to the best of our ability on how to achieve insight into Namarupa, to gain insight into change and permanence and suffering, and possibly attain degrees of sotapanna and pops, you know, something larger, deeper, and more. And they're there to explore that with you. And it's very rare to have that yes. level of fidelity right. to the core teaching, which is the release from self-generated dukkha, suffering. And that was the reason I stayed there, was that I knew in my heart, and know today better than ever, that I am the architect of my own conflict and my own salvation. And to take the pressure and blame and judgment off the world, take the projection off the world, Yes, there's an interrelatedness. Yes, there's an impact that I have on others and others on me. But by and large, choice and mindfulness are integral. And I can't find anywhere on the planet where that becomes so accentuated, where you can eliminate at times your dukkha, your own self-generated suffering. And to get a taste of that level of equanimity and joy and transcendence, there is no greater experience that I've seen as a human being born. Right, sure. And that system provides that. It's not the only place in Burma or perhaps in the world, but uh, I want to protect the sanctity of those teachings to the best of my ability. Right, right. So you mentioned when you first came to Burma, it was one of the things that first brought you there, first caught your attention, was this um, Mahasi book you found in Boulder? No, in um, Florida. Florida. Uh, and that was one of the things that... Uh, that kind of sparked your journey. So back in that time, it was very difficult to get resources. Of course, there was no internet. There wasn't the kind of exploration in the West of Buddhism that there is today. Now from, you know, podcasts like this one, mindfulness podcasts, um, YouTube videos, books, internet, everything else, the Western practitioner has just an absolute mountain of resources at their fingertips, whether it's 
uh, meditation instructions or histories or where to actually go to practice or thinking about ordaining to be a monk. Whereas when you went, it was just one book you happened to find and left in a hotel room or in some used bookshop or that a friend gave you. And those were whether it was, uh, you know, a Mahasi book or a Glenka book or the, these kind of random books that ended up in people's hands that often spark the beginning of their spiritual journey until present day. So if you contrast uh, kind of the dearth of these resources coming from the West into Burma at the time you came, and now you look at uh, how much information there is available when you're coming to Burma, um, what, um, what's your observation as you see practitioners coming with the, the wealth of information that you didn't have? Do you think that this information is a good thing and that it's helpful? Or do you think that sometimes it becomes um, too much and, and actually counterproductive to finding your way? Mm. Coming from my respect for universal human rights, freedom of speech, freedom of thought, freedom of conscience, freedom of association, a country here, as we know, that's had a terrible time achieving those freedoms, uh, where there's a lot of courage to live in those freedoms. Uh, my way of saying that I really appreciate the flow of information sure. in the world. Um, and I'm not in a position, proudly to say, of evaluating the wisdom or the ignorance of someone else. Um, I do believe that, that there is something for everyone if you look carefully, ask deep questions. And I would only encourage people in their search for where to go and who to associate with ask very intimate questions of especially those who teach, um, challenging questions. Can you please tell me, uh, have you deceived yourself? Have you lied to yourself? May I ask you, madame, do you hide information from your friends or from yourself? Do you lie today? Um, how have you seen the translation of your insights into denial, shame, uh, those types of intimate questions. And I'm suspect of anyone who claims to be a teacher mm -hmm. and super suspect of anyone who claims to be enlightened. Mm -hmm. Personally, I stay away from those individuals. I'm really allergic to them, actually. And I think that's a very healthy thing for me. Um, but the information, there's no substitute for the power of taking yourself at some point in your immediate Dhamma life, the first 10 years, into an intimate meditative setting and see for yourself what a sustained application of mindfulness can do in an all-posture-based method so that you are not isolating in on the singularity of an approach. You're taking technique out of it and you're being all-inclusive. When I move my hand, when I listen to words, when I speak, I'm aware of the intention to speak. When I'm looking at you, I see you, I hear you, I feel you, I notice my mind. So there's the application of becoming more awake as a human. That's very important. And I would draw near to those teachings and those people who are offering uh, you a free environment. These retreats that we offer are free of cost. I think there's something to be said in that. Sure. Uh, I've, over the last several years, even in Western countries, I've begun offering my retreats freely, mm -hmm. trying to even remove the word dana. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and just praying that a patron comes along. <laughs> right. Uh, so that there's such a commerciality, in other words, and people have many arguments about this, but so that we maintain a higher degree of purity, that you can trust this and to cease teaching and reveal more of how you're learning. So you're creating safety in an environment. You're creating intimacy in an environment. These are the things that I would really look for if I were, if my daughter, for example, who's 13, wanted to explore, Dad, where should I go to meditate? I would say I'd steer away from these things and I would draw near to these things. Mm -hmm. Right. That kind of thing. So in other words, all the information in the world can't but make up for the special intimate relationship you have with a certain teacher in place. That's, that still comes first. You know, let me answer it another way. In 95, I came back to Burma after several books that I'd written on the country, and I met with Do Aung San Suu Kyi. We did a book together called The Voice of Hope. And she'd just been released from six years of house arrest. And I was blessed to spend two to three days each week for those six months discussing with her and taping, transcribing these conversations and met many of her colleagues. The first time that we met, because there was no guarantee that we'd ever meet again, mm. she was subsequently rearrested and detained for another 12 years after this. But more to the point is I asked her, Do Aung San Suu Kyi, you call your nonviolent struggle for freedom in this country a revolution of the spirit. She says, what do you, what do you mean by that, Dasu? She said, you were out on the street, thousand people gathered in front of my gate, and we talked about the importance of freedom and democracy and dignity and challenging your fear. Now, Alan, every one of these people risked losing their job, their home, their money, and risked going to prison, possibly being tortured, to stand up in solidarity to freedom. And we encouraged them to live in that freedom now rather than freedom tomorrow. Now, it's not easy to confront your fear when you could lose your home, your income. Sure. Now, think of those people challenging everything to stand up in freedom. And her point was, what I'm encouraging people to do here is to liberate themselves from time and circumstances and teachers and breathe the oxygen of freedom wherever you are so that these teachings, wherever you go, you know, you are living them as you would breathing at this very moment so that you take time and circumstance, location, posture, and teacher and teachings and religion out of it and see that being mindful is like breathing, feel. She said, Alan, ultimately the root of this issue is courage, the courage to feel, see the truth, to feel the truth and act on the truth. Those teachings, because her teacher was also said to Upandita, right. it's a translation of how to live in meditative Dhamma presence by taking the retreat consciousness out of the vocation of your career and go, oh, okay. She said, if enough people live in this level of courage to see, feel, and act, one person at a time, our revolution will be successful. And so coming back to what my point is, I'm a real believer to take the retreat, the ism, the teaching, the satipatthana out of your life, and who are you with and how are you relating to that person? Are you breathing in your mindfulness to feel? What do you feel? What do you see? And what do you know? And go right back to those original 20 years of the Buddhist teaching when there wasn't retreats. Mm -hmm. Breathing the oxygen of freedom. Mm. What is your dhamma right here, right now? And to take the industry, the commerciality, the time out of consciousness. Monasteries are just mimicking real life awakening. 
And that's the folly sometimes of becoming a nun and a monk. How many times you read in these Buddhist texts that a real nun or a monk is not someone who shaves their head or dones the robe. It's someone who challenges their own greed, their own anger, and their own delusion, and equally have the courage to embody their opposites, the opposite of greed, which is generosity of spirit. The opposite of fear is, is love. The opposite of ignorance is wisdom. How can I bring these qualities? And that's the greatest thing that I've learned out of these teachings is non-postponement, actualization. The era of hope is over. It's the era of actualization. Breathing your meditation right here, right now. I'm glad you mentioned your visit with Aung San Suu Kyi. I had some questions about that as well. Please. One of the things that's interesting in this country is that you have the most powerful worldly leaders who are influenced by renunciates who have given up everything in the world. So you have this interesting dynamic. I don't know if you find elsewhere. Just a couple of examples of that. Da Aung San Suu Kyi's father, General Aung San, was when he was a uh, very young before he began the nationalist uh, struggles and nationalist movement. Uh, he was very influenced by the Italian monk, Ulokonata, who was close with Sunlun Sayada and Webu Sayada. He was so moved and influenced by this Italian bhikkhu that he flirted with the idea, told his mother that he was thinking about giving it all up to become a monk and how history would have turned out differently with that. Uh, years later, once Myanmar was, um, at that time, Burma was an independent country, of course, Unu wanted to make not just Buddhist identity, but actually Vipassana practice one of the cornerstones of the new uh, Burmese identity of statehood that um, that he felt, uh, you know, if one Vipassana practitioner came in every family, what that would do for the country and uh, did a number of state initiatives to encourage that to happen. You know, they swept the country to look for Vipassana masters. They came up with a list of 71 names. They said these 71 can potentially lead the movement. They uh, they made the Sasanayeta Center before they even had a, t had a teacher. You know, the Sasanayeta Center came first, and then they found Mahasi to be the one to fill it. Um, but they just knew they wanted to have uh, a center that where these teachings would flourish. Um, so with that kind of backdrop, I'm wondering, with the time that you spent with Dong Sang Suu Kyi, um, with that kind of history of the country and kind of in the Burmese character, what sense did you get from her personally about her relationship with the Dhamma? I deeply admire her Dhamma commitment and her, from what I can see, having met her and spent time with her, seen her relationships. I knew her husband quite well, her children, her principal colleagues, uh, Utin U, the Nayaka of the NLD, Uchi Mong, who led the 1990 elections and to an NLD victory while other people were imprisoned. Numerous people. These people have brilliantly, I find, taken classical Theravada Buddhism with a high degree of respect for present time, present awareness, and the discernment to understand the importance of recollection and memory and reflection and how to make wise choices not just being present to this moment now, but seeing Satipatthana as the necessity to reflect upon thought, speech, and action, and to improve and to change, to restrain, to engage. They're skilled Dhamma tacticians in a number of ways, and equally removing a lot of the classical language. They're, I would call Dong San Suu Kyi kind of trans-multi-faith. Hmm. Uh, she's from my experience, watching her, listening to her, being around her, 
although it's been some years, uh, I've met with her a few times over the last seven years. Spoke with her in San Francisco when she was there, when she was awarded the Václav Havel Award for Creative Descent, when I was unblacklisted a few times. But knowing her very well from my time with Seda Upandita and also my time with her, um, she's a remarkably awake, hyper-vigilant being who understands, from my estimation, the power of generosity, uh, diplomacy, if you listen to her speeches, which I've listened to a lot, and I know Mon Mon Mat, who traveled with her for four years and recorded every speech that she gave throughout the country, um, it's a very disciplined Dhamma presentation of unity and harmony. And set aside the criticisms of her, it's not my dimension to be in. I find her to be a Dhamma sister, in other words. Mm -hmm. She meditates, she's disciplined, she's awake, she's regarding the most complex conditions I've ever seen. Look at the complexities dealing with the military. Did you learn about her meditation practice from the time you spent with her? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah she's, she's, uh, she's a diligent meditator. Hmm. And more than that, she's, uh, again, I don't know her intimately well. I saw her as a colleague and as a journalist and as a fellow student of the same teacher. But where I admire her the most is in the application of Dhamma principles mm -hmm. in complex circumstances. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's one thing to be concentrated, peaceful, and joyful in the sanctity of a silent meditation retreat with everything being covered in vegetarian food and quiet and right. you know, comfortable and warm water. Yeah. But to think about bringing these teachings into incarceration, torture, rape, displacement, malaria, typhoid... Uh, the loss of income. I mean, just to think of losing your job to stand up for democracy, right. to take your money away. I mean, I'm in the last, the last, you know, months of of of, of 35 years of engagement in a four book set called Burma's Voices of Freedom that I've interviewed over these years. Not the leading voices, but people I've been moved by, mm -hmm. uh, Muslim clerics, mm -hmm. uh, Catholic. Bishops, Seda Ujanaka, Seda U Sitigu Sayada, Seda U Pandita's in there, Dong San Suchi's in there, Utenu's in there, Ubin Tin's in there, Ubin Tain's in there. So many different people from different backgrounds, school teachers, taxi drivers. And it's remarkable to see the interrelatedness of all these different languages and ethnicities and religions merging into a revolutionary freedom. These people want unity, they want harmony. And I've never seen this kind of coming together, which often doesn't get reported in the international media mm. because it's not – people don't have access. Mm. I've been blessed, as you have, to take a deep interest at the heart of the people here. You've lived here for a decade and a half. I've lived here off and on for 42 years. Mm -hmm. uh, and so by way of saying she and her colleagues and other colleagues and other – other political parties, other religions, there is, there's a shared language here. They want peace. They know suffering. Hmm. And I would dare say that even probably some of the core leaders, oppositional leaders, those who've maybe either ordered or carried out oppression, probably in the core of their being, I know having failed the mission of my own integrity numerous times in my life, driven by greed, I would say that there's a lot of pressure here being put on the collective psyche of all the people to emerge into a chetana, into a kusala state of consciousness, a good state of mind, where we might see reconciliation take place here 
that transforms this society. Where in the world have we seen the convulsion of active, active democracy, active nonviolence with the forces of darkness mm -hmm. and violence in one small nation? Right. And so I'm not just fond of the Burmese or Burma. This is a collection of ethnicities, languages, and religions converging on this ambient planet of ours here possibly in the dying throes of radical environmental apocalypse where people are talking not just about extinction, as you know, but near-term extinction, mm. where there could be hope among our species, where the power of peaceful revolution actually bears fruit. And we see something here that exceeds anything in South Africa, anything in Chile. And Burma could be the new hope. I really do believe in that. I'm investing in that. And I don't care whether I lose but these people have given me four and a half decades of incredible experience, mm, right. incredible dana, mm -hmm. and an opportunity to study my own mind and learn practices and techniques and teachings and relationships, as you know very well, on how to be a better person. Mm. And so I'm giving back as little as I can, as much as I can during this last quarter of my life to support the not just the democracy movement, mm. but something larger than that, the freedom movement mm, here. Right. Where enemies in parliament and activists are sitting hand in hand, heart to heart, difficult as it is, I've been up there, mm. and they're saying there's a there's a higher way, and it may be slow, and I think Da Aung San Suu Kyi has been the first to admit it may not be in my lifetime, but nonviolence is the best way to heal, and to secure potentially the future prosperity, peace, and freedom of our people, all people. You know, I was in Bosnia during the war the last year. Uh, excuse me, I was in Croatia, but I also was in Sarajevo just post-war. But I was in Yugoslavia during the fall of the, the three-way genocide. And I was in Trebinitsa just after, so a couple of months after the genocide there. 8,000 Muslim boys and men were separated from the women in the soccer stadium. Dutch, keeping, Dutch key, peacekeeping forces fled and um, the Serbian paramilitary killed in a couple of days 8,000 boys and men. I was out there in these mass graves, and I realized to the point, looking into that mass graves, those mass graves and those bullet holes in the walls, that how easy it would be for me to justifiably say, you're wrong, I'm right. Okay, that's natural. But what happened for me in deeper mindful reflection, I tried to really do what my teachers tell me to do, put yourself in the mind and body of the perpetrator and in the victim, and ask yourself, could this be you? If it were you, how would you behave? How would you do it differently? Or could you do what you are judging? And I honestly came uh, to the decision that I could do what they had done. Mm -hmm. I, our, could, I could kill. Our conditions then, make us. Yeah, yeah. I could condition, I could move myself to do things I would later regret if I had conscience here in Otapa, mm -hmm. but I may not regret them. Mm -hmm. And so at that point, I dropped being a Buddhist. I dropped being righteous. I dropped being right. My way of saying, I don't condemn the military for killing the monks, imprisoning them, the monks and the nuns, or what's happened in the clearance operations with the Rohingya, or anything that's gone down with decades of violence to the Karens, or even to the Burmese, the political prisoners. God, look at the struggles that they live with in depression and poverty, still many of them. I could do that. And I think that's where Da Aung San Suu Kyi is coming from in her wisdom of reconciliation, is that none of us are beyond these behaviors. And why condemn? But why not live through example? 
And I think that's a very, very powerful teaching for me today to take a higher road. And Upandita encouraged me to take a road of non-punishment, non-vengeance, non-blame. Yes, you could ask for forgiveness. Yes, you could ask for a national televised uh, admission of fault by Tan Shui or any of the other generals or former generals or the cronies. And maybe they'll do that. Maybe there'll be a moment of awakening where they have a moment of redemption. And the best way for that to happen in my life is to stop pointing a finger at me and to awaken that hiri and otapa, that conscience in me, where I actually feel that it's safe to cry, safe to come to terms with my transgressions. Upandita told me before he died, Alan, yes, your practice has been good. Yes, you have more to do. But there's a power in the human mind and it's called admitting your mistakes. There's power in that. You're a better man to do that. And I never really understood that until the last couple of years, three years since he's passed on, I began to practice it slowly among my friends and more publicly in my talks, that yes, lead from how you learn from your mistakes. And I think that's what Aung San Suu Kyi and the people of the NLD and the parliament, and hopefully those who are in power, the whole collective will come to terms with a big, open confession. This is what I did. Let's hold hands. Let's move into the future of national reconciliation and give peace a chance for the sake of the future of freedom. Hmm. Right. You referenced this book, Wisdom of the World, which was the several years of conversation you had with Sayada Upandita, in which you were asking him questions that related to very modern problems uh, in Myanmar and also in the world. And you were asking these questions to a very classically trained, uh, traditional Burmese Buddhist monk. Uh, how was that experience? How, how did you find his um, responses coming from his background to some of the very new and modern problems that you were, you were questioning him about? Upandita, you know, I'm listening to you. I, I so love him. He was my best friend and my teacher, my father, my confidant. I never met anyone who so demonstratively, energetically, passionately encouraged in me the power of mindful intelligence and Dhamma dialogue. So I asked to interview him for our soon-to-be-released four-volume set of books, Burma's Voices of Freedom, and he agreed, and we had a dynamic evening of conversation. Then for the next eight evenings, he asked me to come back, and I came back based upon that invitation in which they were taped and filmed to continue the dialogue. He uh, and I got down into the depths of what I felt to be the integration, the inseparable nature of Dhamma and politics. And I know it's monks aren't involved in politics, nuns aren't involved in politics, but freedom is freedom. Dignity is dignity. It's not a Buddhist thing. It's not a religious thing. It's not a Muslim thing. It's not a, it's not a monk or a nun or a lay woman thing. It's dignity is dignity. It, it, it's without adornment. And he really encouraged me in these dialogues, because most of them were edited out, um, to don't teach Buddhism. Mm -hmm. Share that this Dhamma transcends the Buddha, mm -hmm. that it's, it's the nature of consciousness in context. Call it a world Dharma, which I do. And so the practicality of that, I found it fascinating, because he, there's nothing you could not ask him. He would not back down. So many times he would, in conversation, pause, get out of his seat at 95 years old and ask one of his kapiyas 
to climb the ladder in his cottage, mm -hmm. which was 12 feet high of books. And he'd point out, no, 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 and he'd move the ladder over and grab the book and pull it out and open it up to the page. And he'd sit back down. He'd read from that page <laughs> right. to illuminate the answer so that he got it accurately based upon what he wanted to communicate. Mm. Where do you find that level of care with communication? And again, his motivation, I felt, in that room, those nine nights, was purely his love of compassion, mm. his love of the future of sasana. Very few people know what he had to endure based upon being the Dong San Suu Kyi's main meditation teacher mm. and being a deep teacher with Utinu and many other um, of their colleagues, I would say. He also had many students who belonged to the military. He transcended all dimensions, a Gandhian-like advocate of peace. Mm -hmm. Be the Dhamma that you seek to employ in the world and constantly encouraging people to embody their dana, their sila, their meditative bhavana, to embody their mindfulness. He really believed in the immediacy of an embodied dhamma. He was very revolutionary in that sense. The room itself, those nine nights, um, you'd see people, nuns and lay people, looking in the windows, listening. It was quite an epic moment. He died just several weeks after that. And sadhu, sadhu, sadhu to him for illuminating a wisdom for the world and what he called mindful advice to the people of my nation. And I cannot recommend enough that people read that small book and read between the lines and feel into how those words are not just ink on paper, but they breathe the oxygen of a trans-Buddhistic, trans-ethnic uh, freedom and peace. He speaks about how to be unified in this country. Yeah, and he lived through very turbulent years, has to be said, of Burmese history and his own, his own life. That's right. He talked to me often when I first met him about how during the war he would see uh, Japanese soldiers rape Burmese nuns. Goodness. They lived through horror here. It's, I, I can't say that it's a traumatized culture, but having been in war zones and uh, and briefly under live fire, to be under bombing, to be in the realm of the immediacy of torture, death, rape, to see your own monks killed, to have your students tortured, that's a tall emotional order to hold and to keep alive, and I'm just projecting here, a non-bitterness mm -hmm. and to keep alive an active energy of reconciliation that transcends demonizing the perpetrator is pretty remarkable intelligence. I mean, I use the word mindful intelligence, but he frequently used dhamma intelligence. Mm -hmm. The other side of that too is people may know that he had what's called the Dhamma culture course in Burma for the better part of 60 years, mm -hmm. where the monasteries, the Mahasi centers, and later on Pandita Rama in Golden Valley and his several other monasteries, uh, they encouraged the young boys and girls to come for a month to, to acquaint themselves with the basics of a lived Dhamma experience. Mm. And that's a beautiful thing that he taught so many tens of thousands of young boys and girls how to live in a, in a Dhamma way. Mm -hmm.
And again, I emphasize, although he was a, perhaps one of the most senior Buddhist monks in this country, or perhaps anywhere in the world, very few people know that about him, but he, very people know that he, he was very trans-religious. Hmm. He was... Yeah, I didn't know that. Super trans-religious. Can you, can you describe what you mean by that word? Well, I'm a, a brash, sort of slightly educated American mm -hmm. into music and dance mm -hmm. and intimacy. And here I come along and he and I become unbelievably close allies, bridging continents and generations. But he knew several languages. He was mm. super literate with literature. He could quote Tolstoy. Mm. He was super well-read. Mm. And people don't know, but he was the primary teacher in the Mahasi system of teachers. Mm. He wasn't just a teacher right. of Westerners, but he taught the Burmese. He was a teacher trainer, meditation teacher. Tra teacher that's right. Trainer, he was yeah. the principal trainer mm. of teachers in the Mahasi tradition. Mm. So he was super skilled at analogy and example and parable, mm. um, metaphor. And one of the things that he had, which is very rare to find in the world, he, if you had the good fortune, the good parami to be in close with him, even for an hour or two, he was super curious about you. Mm -hmm. So he'd ask you very intimate questions oh. about, about who you are you, where did you come from, what was your relationship with your father, what mm -hmm. did your father do, mm. were you ever upset with him, what did he do that you loved? Wow. Do you have habits that you don't like revealing? Mm. He really wanted to know about you. He was a wow. kind of dhamma, trans, psychotherapeutic, meditative uh, kind of psychonaut, if you will. It's amazing to think of someone with, of his stature with his level of responsibility being able to take the time to empty and listen and focus on on the, the life and psychology of just someone right before him and push out all the other things that are probably on his mind that he's doing and just to listen, completely I, embrace you. You're so, so right to say that. I mean, and I'm, I can be, I want to say, not the easiest person to communicate with. I'm, you know, Lebanese, American, Arab. Christian demonstrative, huge, massive family, brash. <laughs> he was, I never saw him in 41 years ever be impatient with mm, me. Mm. And not only not cutting anything off, mm. but people talk about deep listening. Mm. He, I would say, I'm not projecting because I saw him with close to 10,000 yogis over the years, maybe more, and many lay people, both in this country, around the world. He had a way of creating psychical dimensionality in communication. It wasn't just listening. He created space around mm. language, around words. Wow. He took not only the hurry out of space, but he gave, took the walls down from the intimacy of interrelatedness. Mm. And because you were so safe, he was a monk. And, but he never really claimed teacher with you. Mm -hmm. He empowered wisdom over role, I found, mm. and probably one of the most misunderstood people in modern times. But then again, you look at the time of the Buddha, reading the text, whether we can believe them or not, who knows. But people like, um, was it Devadatta who created a schism mm -hmm. in the Sangha based upon his eloquence and the advocacy? advocacy of vegetarianism. Mm. Imagine competing with the eloquence of a Buddha. Right. <laughs> Fully empowered with no greed, anger, or delusion. Mm. 
trained over, so to speak, eons of time to evolve paramis of generosity, patience, not to mention all the abhinyas, and you get someone who's unenlightened, mm -hmm. who can compete toe-to-toe -to -toe mm -hmm. on a dhamma talk, mm -hmm. so much so that splits the sangha. Mm -hmm. How easy it is, my point, to be misunderstood. Sure. Then you have people who tried to kill the Buddha. Who knows where they were born? Who tried to kill the monks and kill the monks mm -hmm. in other countries, in this country? Mm -hmm. We're living out a kind of infinite interrelated legacy of coreless energies of being called human life, lower life, higher life. Mm. We don't know who we really are. Mm -hmm. And Upandita really played into that, mm. that energetic physics, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so by way of saying, he gave a lot of time to you. Mm -hmm. If you showed up mm -hmm. and you delivered at a high level of intimacy and honesty. He loved honesty. Mm -hmm. But if you copped attitude, people don't really know this about him, and I mm -hmm. think it may be a Burmese trait. Right. But the issue of mana pride or you know, the Western ego concept, Sergei arrogance, I know, how come you're not acknowledging that I know? I'm a Sotapanna under the practice of this particular teacher. I'm coming to you because you're so s trained, but I want you to acknowledge that I'm a Sotapanna. Mm, wow, you now, got that. They won't say it so directly, mm -hmm. but they're thinking it. Right, right. And people don't know that he knows what they're thinking. <laughs> he can see it in their body language. He can mm. see what they're withholding. Mm. And how many times I would hear from him mm. because he would often encourage a learning of what the interview is teaching us, that people's obstacle is mana, and one of the ways that mana is delivered to their own mind is the architecture of false certainty. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's built by the projection of an experience in the past that isn't what they think it is. And how many Buddhist teachers think that they're enlightened, and it's the very thing that prevents them from going deeper in their practice. Right. Right. So how would you respond when someone came with some of that mana? Classical, this is my experience in Burma, classical style is please continue. Mm -hmm. Let the practice do what it does. Right. Let it self-transform. Mm -hmm. Better that you learn from your own mistakes than me point them out. Mm -hmm. Frying your own oil, in other words. Uh, or if they were really entrenched, he would play with them to some extent. Oh. Um, You've asked me to marry you, but you're the one who wants to lead the ceremony? Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, in other words, please listen to what I'm saying. Right, right. Like include every thought that you have as unnecessary to believe. I mean, very subtle. Mm -hmm. Even the thought that you've attained Sankara Pekunyana, mm. even the thought that you've attained Uddiyabhayanyana, even the thought that you've become a, a Sotapanna, those are obstacles for people. It just turns out mm -hmm. that, and he often joked with me, among some monks he would come mm -hmm. and introduce me to two, that the worst yogis are learned monks <laughs> right. because they mimic. Mm -hmm. They're so learned in the Abhidhamma, the Tipitaka, in the suttas, and they come to practice, and all of a sudden they have no real relationship to experiential dhamma, mm. or at least the, the practice of jnana and insight, mm -hmm. that all of a sudden, based upon unrecognized 
mana and pride, they begin to tell the teacher what they think the teacher wants to hear. Mm, or what they read in the book. or What they read know. in the book and they're trying to appeal to the good graces of the teacher to win mm -hmm. favor. They already have lots of followings. They often have monasteries. And he would stay silent. He would give them not the silent treatment that's too severe, but he would just simply look at them and say, please carry on. Please carry on. Why, aren't, why isn't he encouraging me? Mm. Does he even like me? Mm -hmm. uh, I had to prove myself even more. I've been sitting now for three hours without moving, <laughs> that kind right. of thing. And yeah. he wouldn't buy it. Oh. He wouldn't buy it. And so a lot of people, I think, who've judged him over the years, like judge any good teacher, mm -hmm. It's because they didn't get what they wanted based mm. upon their unrecognized mana. Mm. It doesn't mean that teachers don't have faults. Sure. But if you were to ask me what were his faults, I mean, I was with him as well as anyone in the world for 41 years off and on. Well, I would say only he knows where he has been caught, whether it's in the form of forms, extravagances, things, I don't know. But I've never met a human on the planet that I've had more respect for than Sera Upandita, mm. Mahasi Sera, Sera Usujata, Sera U Zawana, Sera U Tinu, Sera U Chimong, U Tin, the journalist who spent 19 years in solitary. And I have a super high respect for Dong San Suu Kyi and the people of this country for living under such harsh conditions and managing to continue to keep alive a culture of dana mm. and sila and bhavana. Mm. Yeah, that actually goes into my next question. So you, you're one of the few foreigners that really has a long memory and experience of having come back here over, as you say, 41 years on and off. So you've definitely seen the changes happen year by year. As you mentioned, these are well-documented changes. So these are these are things that you can pull up a Wikipedia page or look at a documentary to see some of the, especially in the last five years, some of the big shocking changes. But one of the questions I have for you, especially with your long memory and history of, of what you've seen from way back in, you know, since the 70s, um, spending time in the monasteries, have you seen a change there? Obviously outside the monasteries and in the world, those changes are well documented. But as you keep going back to do, to do retreats or lead retreats or spend time with monks or just be in a monastic environment, what if any changes have you seen over the course of these decades and years? Interesting question. Um, and it could be a material answer, it could be a cultural answer, could be something related to experience, the, anything from absolutely. your, your lived, the, the your lived biggest, life. The biggest change that I see is the quality of guidance. Um, these were Dhamma giants. This was the golden years. Yeah, they yeah. were Dhamma giants. It was a golden generation of, uh, and what launched that golden generation from the 50s to the 70s, that's, that's a whole other topic that I've also looked into. But the fact that this was a golden generation that launched all these giants coexisting at the same time to spread their teachings. And you came towards the tail end of it when uh, you know it was still still very active and kind of petered out. But so that's that's interesting that that's one of the um, that's what really strikes you in looking today is feeling a lack of not so much the lack, but when you are com when you are in relationship to giants, you have to recognize your size. Hmm. I mean, how often do you get a Buddhist council that's been six in the last twenty six hundred years? Mm -hmm. And to have Mahasi Sero as one of the two principals. And I met uh, uh, his contemporary who had memorized the text and who was. Mingun Sero? Mingun Sero. Mm. These were epic mm. individuals. Mm. That's one thing. 
that the teachings exist in the quality that they do. I've been here for the last five years leading these retreats, or I should say assisting from behind and listening very carefully to the monks. Well, I mean, one of the Ovadasaris of Mahasi today is Usobana, Mahasi Sato's chief attendant. When I was a monk there, and he was just a few years older than me, mm. and he's now the head of the monastery. Mm. And the teachers beneath him are primarily monks who are in their early 40s. Mm. It's a youth movement almost. <laughs> right, time passes. That's one. But the lineage continues. And I listen to them and I talk to them in their rooms and in their cottages. They're pretty hip people. Mm. I mean, the telecommunications today in the digital era mm. has really improved their access to information, obviously. Mm. So their dhamma eloquence and dimensionality with metaphor, analogy, parable, oh, and metaphor is remarkable. Mm. So they're able to integrate a lot of classical teachings uh, in a more interesting cultural way mm. for Westerners. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. But we, plus, we have, we have 23 countries coming for these 10 days, for 50 yogis coming mm. on January 31st. Mm -hmm. Now, mind you, I say that I wouldn't really advocate people, Westerners being at the monastery, if I wasn't there behind the scenes offering cultural translation. Mm. Right. Uh, and they know that. So the second point is all the people, the Buddhasasana Nugaha organization, are primarily contemporaries of mine. I knew their fathers. Mm -hmm. U Tinso Lin, whose father was U Gong, was the president of the Mahasi uh, Yekta when I was a monk there. Mm -hmm. He obviously died. His son now is the president. And I'm actually a year older than him. Mm. So although they practiced with the giants at one point, at the latter years of the lay society manifesting their greatest aspiration, which is to protect and propagate the sasana, mm -hmm. those monasteries had a high degree of sanctity. Mm -hmm. Upandita would walk the dining hall often, I know because I lived there, encouraging yogis, slow down, hmm. shh, like that. Mm -hmm. you'd, then all of a sudden you'd hear nothing. <laughs> You wouldn't even hear a utensil. Mm. Now you go there, and it's not trying to judge it, but it's sure. loud. Sure, sure. Yeah. Slow down, he would say. Mm. Take an hour mm. to eat. Walk slowly back to the hall. Skip going to your room. Mm -hmm. Take the speed out of your behavior. Mm -hmm. You don't see much of that. Mm. Uh, Again, I come from a, an aesthetic, I would call it, of silence and beauty. I have that kind of desire in me. Mm, mm. I mean, if I were the, if the Buddha Sasana Nugaha brought me in and asked, Alan, what would your mm. aspirations be to evolve the sanctity of this 20 acres? Mm -hmm. I would say I would take some of the dana and buy an adjacent lot for cars to park in so there's no cars allowed in the monastery. Right. Take automation out. Mm. No tobacco is allowed in the monastery. There's 200 workers there. Mm. And you have to contend with not only just endless banging and building, but you have to deal with tobacco and talking. And so it's, it's almost like 
intensive meditation in daily life. And so it's challenging on that level. Hmm. Uh, obviously, around the monastery, there's three, four, 20-story condominiums being built. You can't stop that. Right. That's the ungone these days. But creating sanctity, we had sanctity back in the day. You could walk slowly and you wouldn't see a car particularly. Uh, Upandita was really careful with slowing down. You don't really see that that much right now. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a number of things like that. But overall, the teachings exist in the way that they do. And we're honored. I mean, I'm back. This is our fifth year and I hope to continue them. Right. Yeah, that's great. Um, there's a lot more here, but I'm really conscious of your time. Really, thank you for coming out, and hopefully, some other time we can uh, no, we can chat thank again. Thank you, thank yeah. you. Real honor to be here. And may may my last comment, if I can, is yeah, please. may may people the world over who may listen to this, um, whether you come to engage in dhamma with any of the teachers that might inspire you, it's not just a dhamma culture in Myanmar. It's 55 million people in a complex tapestry of behaviors born from greed, anger, and delusion. It's been very epic here. It's an archetypal confluence. It's like what Dostoevsky said, beauty is mysterious as well as terrible. God and the devil are fighting there. It's the battlefield of the human heart. Mm. This culture has dealt with enormous beauty and enormous evil. Mm. If you come here, and I encourage people to come here, bring your freedom, bring your human rights, bring your generosity, and don't pressure the Burmese or the, the, the Kachins or the Karins or the Mons, anyone you meet, to give you what you deserve as a tourist. Mm. But what can you give back as if you were going there on pilgrimage to serve the culture, to learn from the culture? Mm -hmm. Go to offbeat places, ask questions, and, and do all that you can to serve the liberty of this country and to support the best interest of the people who are trying their very best, Aung San Suu Kyi, her colleagues in parliament, even the best interests of Senior General Ming Online and the former General Tan Shui, to support their dana sila bhavana, their awakening. Everyone's awakening here. What can we do invest into the peace, the prosperity, the unity, and the reconciliation of this country? Because if we get reconciliation here, it could be peace on the planet. Mm. So that's my last encouragement. Give back to the people if you come here. Mm. Great. So, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. One of the beautiful things about Burmese monasteries is that everyone can practice selfless giving. I've seen poor families give just one spoonful of rice to a communal alms bowl, and I've seen still poorer families wake up at five in the morning to collect flowers to offer to the Buddha shrine. As our Insight Myanmar podcast runs on the power of donation, we also greatly appreciate any amount of support to keep our engine running. If you'd like to give a monthly donation through Patreon, that continued support will allow us to continue making these episodes available to you. If even a small fraction of our listeners donated the equivalent of a cup of coffee as a monthly pledge, 
we could be funded well into the future. If your income is less stable, we greatly appreciate one-time donations as well of any amount. If you find the Dhamma interviews we are sharing of value and would like to support our mission, we welcome your contribution. You may give via Patreon at www.patreon.com slash insightmyanmar, as well as PayPal at www.paypal.me slash insightmyanmar. In both cases, that's Insight Myanmar, one word, I-N-S-I-G-H-T-M-Y-A-N-M-A-R. If you are in Myanmar and would like to give a cash donation, please feel free to get in touch with us. So I hope that you enjoyed that interview with Alan Clements as much as I did. There was a lot in that discussion to unpack. And for those less familiar with Vipassana meditation, Burmese Buddhism, monasticism, overall Burmese history, and the current state of Myanmar today, some parts of the talk may be worth reflecting on a bit more. For that reason, I'm going to connect with my good Dhamma friend, Zach Hessler, and share some thoughts about the discussion that you just heard. Zach has quite a bit of experience in the Golden Land, from intensive meditation retreats and pilgrimages to work assignments and for three years as a forest monk here. So he has quite a bit of background to draw upon in catching the deeper themes involved with the talk with Alan and bringing them in for closer consideration. We hope this reflection will provide listeners a broader context in which to place the content that you've just heard. Zach is currently in rural Thailand, and we'll just give a quick Skype call to check in with him now. Hey, Zach, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Yeah, great. How's, uh, how's your week been? <laughs> yeah, you're not going to believe this. Uh, I woke up the other night to the dog, one of the dogs barking, which is not an unnormal thing. It uh, happens almost every night. But I went outside this time and <laughs> I saw the bushes moving. So I ran inside and grabbed the flashlight and flashed the light out in the bushes, and there was an elephant staring right back at me. Oh, boy. Yeah, that was uh, that was exciting, about 1.30 in the morning. Uh, usually, I just get up and shout at the dog, you know, pretend I'm angry, and they, the dog will shut up. Uh, but this time, yeah, I was really barking at, at something real rather than what she usually barks at, which is nothing. So here's the, the other funny, the funny part of this story. That was the exciting part. The funny part is that the, the elephant went around to the kitchen and in the morning, there's like flour everywhere. But the story I had missed, I mean, I saw the elephant uh, some other times as well, but the, the owner of the house was right up by the window, right by the kitchen. And the, <laughs> the elephant, it was an adolescent elephant. It had snorted the flour like cocaine <laughs> and realized it didn't like it. And it put its trunk up and blew it everywhere. So when the owner first saw the elephant, just a big elephant in your kitchen, and uh, flour falling everywhere like snow. So. Oh wow, that's not every day. That doesn't happen every yeah, day. Uh, but but teenagers will be teenagers, won't they? That's true. That's true. Yeah, I um I can't say I quite had a week like that. I think your week uh, eclipses mine. But um, but uh, boy, no easy uh, transition from that to talking about Alan's interview. But uh, but here we go. So, um, yeah, let's uh, let's talk about that. I uh, interesting that um, Alan has a Boulder, Colorado connection. We have a Boulder, Colorado connection as well. So kind of interesting when different Dhamma people and events are happening from a similar place. Maybe not so unusual Boulder being what it is. But uh, yeah, let's uh, let's take it from the top. What were your uh, your thoughts on on Alan's talk? 
Yeah, sorry, I don't have any clever segues from elephants into uh, into Alan's talk, but um, yeah, I, right. one of the things I'll be honest, I don't have a lot of experience with the Mahasi method, but of course, you know, just it's such a influence. It's such an influential technique or tradition, rather. Uh, I think Alan's correcting me on saying technique in a way, right? That tradition is so predominant. So of course, I've I've come across. I've come across it, had people describe it to me. So, I mean, what I what I thought was the Mahasi technique, and I think this is what a lot of people might say, you know, that it's the, the rising and falling of the abdomen, the, uh, the abdomen, the labeling of, of what you're aware of, you know, uh, and then the, the really slow, um, if you go to a meditation center and you see someone eating really slow or walking really slow, like, I think almost everyone say, oh, they're doing Mahasi. So, uh, but Alan, though, he, he, uh, he says it's actually impossible to describe the Mahasi method. So, in, and he said often people are just describing what they've learned. And they may have actually learned it from someone who has actually kind of boiled it down to those things. But in his experience of, and I thought this was really interesting, in his experience in, in just listening to People giving interviews, you know, getting interviews with the teacher and and giving their their practice experience, and then listening to the feedback and the instructions given by the the different teachers, it it actually varies much much more than than uh, than I had thought, and it, perhaps other people as well. And instead, he boiled it down to the three different things. I thought uh, continuous mindfulness, taking the speed out of life. So that that one's similar. And then the postural apartheid, he called it, like not being connected to um, sitting or sitting, walking, or even the four postures of standing, sitting, walking, lying down. Anything, everything you're doing to bring awareness to that. So, because I'd always had this question at Shwayuman, when I was practicing there with Utejaniya, that, you know, Shwayuman Sayadaw was actually the, the Mahasi the main Mahasi teacher, I believe, um, or one of the main ones, I don't really know how that, that works over there, uh, for 10 years. And, and he doesn't really teach. I mean, I don't know what he was teaching at that time, but I know his, his, his way of teaching isn't with the abdomen. Uh, it isn't uh, slow, but it is continually mind, mindful, and it has this postural apartheid, so to speak. It's, it's, he doesn't call it that, but I thought that was a funny way to put it and quite apt. So, uh, so then I could actually see in that broader sense that Alan brought that, that, that there is a good fit there, actually. And I could see why Mahasi might have, you know, appointed him to teach and, and where there was really no conflict. I think that's where, where I wasn't quite understanding before, but this sheds a little more light on that. So yeah, that was that was one interesting thing. I thought. Uh, yeah, certainly. I I had a similar feeling as what you had hearing him talk about the the quote unquote Mahasi method, or maybe it wasn't a method at all, and some of those connections with Shwayumin. And um, following up after that, I, I think one of the things that I really appreciated during the talk was so hearing about that relationship with Upandita and the time they spent together, I, I just found so heartwarming, so wonderful and beautiful the way he described it. And just to reflect on this unusual friendship that it was that they shared, how he describes the world that he was coming from and, 
and uh, and you know Upandita coming from a traditional conservative Burmese Buddhist background, also a very difficult background with his time um, coming out of uh, you know the difficult Burmese history that he had lived through, and this kind of odd pairing, and yet so close and so personal, and just the the, the love and the respect and the um, reverence that that he has off of his voice for his master, I, I just found so beautiful and so wonderful that this kind of teacher-student relationship can take place. Um, I was also quite touched just to hear about how curious Upandita was of his students. You know, sometimes when there's a great master, they they have their their hands in so many different things. Sometimes you could even look at these great Burmese Buddhist sayadas and they're managing so many things, they can almost be more like a CEO sometimes. And you you might hear these big names and when you have a chance to meet them, you you always are kind of uncertain how much time they're going to give you and how much they're going to be attuned to some of the smaller things that you're dealing with comparatively. And I've definitely had the experience of having an audience with some very top level Burmese Buddha Sayadas today and, uh, and, and feeling a little bit overwhelmed, a little bit like I, I didn't really have a place in the conversation. And, uh, and then I've met other uh, Sayadas that have been incredibly impressive in terms of how much they've been able to turn off everything else they're doing and just be concerned about the small things I'm bringing to them. And this is what Alan talked about. He, he mentioned just the, the uh, intense, amazing curiosity that Upandita would have asking about uh, his students' life and family relationships and habits and details back home. And I found that very impressive and inspiring that someone that was managing as much as he was and had the level of responsibility that he did also had the time and the mental space to be able to make those inquiries of little details about the students under him. And when you think about how many students he had under him and how much time it spent having those conversations, I, I think that was a real valuable insight into Upendita's uh, career and as a teacher. And that was just wonderful to hear. Um, also, in regards to his relationship with Upandita, and he references this at the very end, Alan does, is this idea of this being an age of giants. This is, this is a time when the golden generation of Burmese monks are coming out and sharing their Dhamma teachings and how lucky and fortunate anyone was to come into contact with this generation of Burmese giants. Some of those teachers are well known throughout the world. Some are lesser known. Some were very popular in Myanmar at the time in the 50s and 60s and a little bit into the 70s, but uh, have have not really had their own legacy or following. But the the numbers of those great teachers at that time and what they did simultaneously in the country and across the world and spreading their teachings is really remarkable. And to hear one example, actually two examples, if you count Mahasi Sayada, with that and Alan's relationship to those monks and how they affected him seen in a broader context as this generation of, of uh, a, a golden generation of great Burmese teachers that is at its end. And, um, you know, when the last question, when I had asked Alan what differences he saw at monasteries today, there was kind of what I interpreted it as a little bit of a sad sigh and admitting that he doesn't see this level of of great competence uh, happening. I, uh, I, I don't know if I can authoritatively comment on that. I think that would do a lot of work to look at, but I do respect someone with his level of involvement in history making that opinion himself. 
and it opens up all other kinds of questions into what caused this generation to arise, what, uh, why did they come at this time, and what effect did they have, and what's happening today. I think there are a number of teachers that are doing some pretty incredible things that are not as well known, and to kind of track what they're doing and, and how they're moving on will be of interest. Uh, but I, I do think in, in the broader context of of these great teachers and these giants, that's a really interesting thing um, to consider in the country and the practice today. Yeah, it's an interesting, interesting to think about. Uh, the thing where my mind goes is, is that how many techniques do you need to create, though? You know, we have Mogok, Mahasi, or traditions rather, you know, and if there's still great teachers there, you know, that, you know, that not that there can't be something new arising, but, but that there'd be this golden heyday where several, you know, there's Tangu Sayadaw, Mogok Sayadaw, Mahasi Sayadaw. Uh, I mean, there's just so much going on at one time. And then I still think those wheels are set in motion though. And then do you need a whole new batch of of all you know, new starting new traditions again, I, I think that it served a time and a place, and perhaps you know, this is a time and a place for an evolution of those things rather than more uh, of that same type of um, how would you say it? like genesis of of techniques and traditions, you know. So um, yeah, I'm not sure though. We'll see what happens. You know, we we met uh, Sayada, um uh, Tabawa Sayadaw, and you know he's he's moving things in a new direction. So and he's and he's kind of building on on those on that generation. So uh, perhaps it's for me it's too early to tell whether whether uh, this generation lacks or is actually building on and and still moving. You know, so is it is it decreasing or has it evolved on on top of that? So I'm not sure about that yet. The other thing is like, uh, as far as his personal relationship is, that was, yeah, that really touched me, you know, it really jarred me a little bit because to be honest with you, all I've heard about Upandita was mostly uh, his sternness and the sternness of his center and, and the schedule and everything. So I had formulated a, a, a respectful, but less interested um, um, perception of 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 that tradition so you know to be honest uh even more honest i i thought perhaps well perhaps i've missed out on something so and to be more careful with this mind not to not to block that i'm not saying that that would have been the right for, fit for me you know having gone to Myanmar when i did but but i have a lot of respect I had a lot of respect for it because I met some monks from Nepal that were studying uh, at Upandita Center, and and you know, they were getting, you know, that meditation practice, and they were also getting vinya, good vinya instruction. So I was really impressed that they were being taken care of in that kind of communal way that Alan was being was talking about. Where and that isn't always the case. Sometimes in Myanmar, like they teach how to meditate, and you know, as a monk, you know. Uh, a lot of monks are, are sort of left on their own, partly because of language. So, you know, you're not necessarily taught the chanting. You're not necessarily taught the vinya so thoroughly uh, by anyone. Uh, so it has its strong points and weak points for, for a foreigner. And, and you can't really participate so easily in the academic side of things. So, so yeah, so it sounds like there, there there's this more, there's a, a more 
he said it's like a family, you know, and, and it's taking care of you on, on all the levels. So uh, all of that touched me. Uh, yeah, certainly. And uh, I'd also heard uh, differing things from Upandita practitioners. I also haven't practiced that myself, but uh, I had heard the impression that it was a, a very intense and, and rigorous and disciplined place. And then I talked to other people that were dedicated practitioners and had been for many years, and they shared something similar to Alan in the sense that Upandita did not like to waste time. Um, he, if you were giving your all to him, he would give his all back and he would have endless caring for you. But part of that caring did come in the discipline. And, you know, we're, we're familiar with stories of discipline from Sayaji Ubaken, who also didn't want his meditators, his students at his center to waste time and wanted to spend time on those people who needed him most. And so uh, someone who has that sense of discipline can easily be misunderstood by those who aren't really inside to see the level of support and love and care and endless giving, which is what we hear uh, here as well. Um, as Alan was describing his experiences in the country, in and out of the country for so many years, I was just so moved by how difficult those early years were from, I think, uh, 79 to 84, you know, he was thrown out four times, um, three times he, after three times he came back. And after the fourth time, it was just uh, too painful to, to have having to keep going through that process. Uh, you know, the, the conditions that he went through as a student, I think, are, are worth underscoring of just how strenuous they were and how much he wanted to be here, how much he wasn't taking anything for granted and how much he was giving up. Um, by that experience. And these aren't just conditions of, uh, of, of living in a poor country where he's not getting the comforts that he's used to. And we're not talking about luxuries. You know, we're talking about bed mattresses and mosquito nets and purified water. But this is also not a free society at the time where when he is interviewing Da Aung San Suu Kyi, the notes of that interview he can't even be holding. He has to bury under a monastery in the ground for 15 years before they're able to collect those notes. I think some of them went out through the jungle. And it's also a society where it's very layered. So within all of this this dhamma that he's receiving and all of all of the support that uh, is being shown by by Burmese people as well as the monks, there's also suspicion. And there's a, a story that he's referenced elsewhere of leaving the country on one occasion and being at the airport and a Burmese woman giving him that he doesn't know, giving him a book that is the discourses of the Buddha. And he's kind of hesitates and then he takes the book and then he's about to, to, to walk through customs and then he has a second thought about it and he opens up the book and on the cover page of the book, there's a statement that says something like this is so-and-so and he's been meeting with these people and, and he wasn't allowed to do this and he should be detained immediately and not allowed to leave the country. So he throws the book in the garbage and then he continues out. And uh, and this is just kind of a, a heartbreaking and traumatic story of these layers that exist in the society and that the other side of this tremendous amount of support and um, and encouragement and pure giving that he's receiving to develop in the Buddhist teachings, then the words of the Buddha in the form of a book actually become the Trojan horse to try to to capture him in in some kind of way, and uh, and I th and and so reflecting back on the overall conditions of his stay here, this was the difficulties that he faced in so many ways were really quite profound and showed his dedication as a yogi. And over the course of these 40 years, 
it's very wonderful talking about the just the love and the the reciprocal giving that he now feels towards Burmese people as their society moves forward in wanting to um, wanting wanting to 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 give back to try to give back from everything that he received. Right. One of the one of the most beautiful expressions that I remember him talking about that really struck me was that that if you are the type of person that has the intention to seek enlightenment, all your needs will be provided for. I mean, <laughs> that's special, right? So, I mean, this is something I think that's what the Buddha was hoping for and intended and set up, uh, you know, 2,600 years ago, roughly. And there still exist a few places in the world that, that, uh, as a society, I mean, perhaps it's possible in, in, in different ways everywhere, but as an entire society, a culture that it's so well supported, you, you're so well supported and so many people can attest to that. And it, you know, it's such a heartfelt gratitude for, for that uh, phenomenon, that ability, that, that possibility still existing in this world. Yeah, yeah, that's right. The uh, the final point that I would make of the thing that struck me was his discussion on conditionality. And that came up when he was talking about his time spent in Bosnia, which sounded like it's funny going the other side of the world and, and very much a non-Buddhist country is where he seemed to make a major insight in his practice. And that is that the conditions are what make us who we are. This actually led him to the idea of of letting go of the idea of being a Buddhist. Um, he realized, he says in the interview, what these people are doing, I can do that. None of us are beyond those behaviors. And, uh, and that led him to looking to develop uh, a life of non-blame. Uh, also of looking at Buddhism as being something without labels, without labels of oneself or when others, because the conditions are what make how this mind works and perceives. And, th and by doing so, it allows us to recognize the transgressions of others. Uh, I found this interesting as well because as, as Dhamma or Buddhist teachings or Vipassana meditation, as, uh, whatever you want to call it, starts to make its way to the West, there's been different ways to interpret it over the years. Some people have said it's more of a spirituality or a philosophy than a religion. There's been other words thrown around like it's non-sectarian, it's atheist, it's agnostic, it's secular. And I found his take on it of being without labels as, an, as another interesting way to look at it. So he's not rejecting or changing some of the, 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 the ways that Buddhism or Buddhist thought is understood, but he's using actually the, the Buddha's own, own the, he's using the Buddha's own teachings to look at things without labels. And this also moves the conversation for me in going back to the church state argument that or church state dynamic that was discussed in the Seyedah's interview. You know, church state has been an issue in societies for ages, trying to work out how one is affecting the other, how they should affect the other. And I had remarked after hearing the first the Seyedah's interview, or I should say hearing the Seyedah's first interview, that uh, I was uh, really impressed upon me the idea that his mission and monastery was constrained by being in a less free state and how freer society also supported his mission. And so I was really interested in this talk to hear a glimpse into how Alan perceived the connection between his own activism and the Dhamma practice and what binds it together. 
and that that seemed he seemed to be saying this idea of examining things without labels and uh, himself and others. Um, that it's uh, this understanding of conditionality is what makes us who we are and helps us to drop labels and see what is. I really appreciate the impact this can have on a personal level of forgiveness and humility and dealing with others. I think for me, answers would still remain on a, on a greater state policy level. And, you know, that's not what this talk was about. But uh, I, I really appreciated those threads that bound everything together in that way. Right. At times, it seems like what's going on in, in some of those other aspects you mentioned about, about as, as the Dhamma moves to the West of taking, um, taking out the, the religious aspect in, and, and trying to make it more universal in a sense at the same time, at times, at least in some circumstances, it has become another thing with, with other labels, the mindfulness movement. So it, it, it didn't, what Alan's talking about, and this I think speaks to what you're talking about, uh, for me is he's stepping back from labels where some of those other ones are end up, whether they intended to or not, they end up just changing the labels to be more suitable to a, a different culture. And uh, I think that's where I felt the, the most difference there. And, and anytime, anytime anyone's practice ends up with the wisdom of conditionality, which is, you know, the, the hammer that shatters uh, anatta or atta, actually, you know, the shatters atta, the understanding of self, uh, so we can understand anatta. I am not this thing. There is just a, a, there is just a set of circumstances, a set of conditions right now that are, are culminating in this particular experience. I mean, that goes as deep as the Dhamma goes. So, uh, so, and then and then to have him bring it around to how he himself and uh, and he's saying the, uh, the 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 biggest players in the democratic government of Myanmar are actually putting that into practice. That was uh, yeah, that was inspiring. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and and well said on that. Um, so, uh, so great. That was a, it was a great talk with Alan. He actually came back. So there'll be a second part that, that we're putting out and, um, and thanks for spending the time to, uh, to check in about that again. Yeah. Well, I look forward to that, the second interview as well. It should be interesting. Yeah, great. Well, thanks for taking that time. I know it's been an exciting week for you. Um, be really excited to check in again next week and see what beans, uh, approach your living space at that time. <laughs> we'll see if it's as exciting. What's next after elephants, tigers? Uh, we'll see. Oh boy. Yeah. Okay. Okay. We'll take care and check in with you later. Okay. See you next time. Okay. Bye. You have been listening to the Insight Myanmar podcast. We invite you to rate, review, and share our podcast as every little bit of feedback helps. You can also subscribe to the Insight Myanmar podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Additionally, you can listen and download right off the web at www.insightmyanmar.captivate.fm. That's www.insightmyanmar, one word, I-N-S-I-G-H-T-M-Y-A-N-M-A-R dot captivate, C-A-P-T-I-V-A-T-E dot F-M. 
If you cannot find our feed on your podcast player, please let us know and we will ensure it can be offered there. There was certainly a lot to talk about in this episode, and we'd like to encourage listeners to keep the discussion going. Make a post, suggest a guest, request specific questions, and join in on discussions on our Insight Myanmar podcast Facebook group. And also welcome to join our Facebook and Instagram accounts by the same name, Insight Myanmar. If you're not on Facebook, you can also message us directly at burmadama at gmail.com. That's B-U-R-M-A-D-H-A-M-M-A at gmail.com. Or if you'd like to start up a discussion group on another platform, let us know and we can share that forum. We would also like to take this time to thank everyone who made this podcast possible, especially our two sound engineers, Martin Combs and Tharng A, along with Zach Hessler, content collaborator and part-time co-host, and Ken Pransky, who helps with editing. We'd also like to thank everyone who assisted us in bringing the guests who have made up the show so far, as well as the guests themselves, for agreeing to come and share their stories. Finally, we're immensely grateful to the donors who made this entire thing possible in the first place. We also remind our listeners that the opinions expressed by our guests are their own and not necessarily reflective of the host or other podcast contributors. If you find the Dhamma interviews we are sharing of value and would like to support our mission, we welcome your contribution. You may give monthly donations at Patreon at www.patreon.com slash InsightMyanmar or one-time donations on PayPal at www.paypal.me slash InsightMyanmar. In both cases, that's InsightMyanmar, one word. If you are in Myanmar and would like to give a cash donation, please feel free to get in touch with us.